We're here today to introduce um, two wonderful writers. I'd like to introduce Laura Alvary, who's a short story writer from Brisbane. Her first collection of short stories, Trick of the Light, was a finalist in the Queensland Literary Awards and has been described as a triumph of excavation, a collection in which dark matter is exposed and subsequently transformed. Her second collection, Ordinary Matter, this very beautiful looking book, uh, was inspired by the 20 times women have won the Nobel Prize for Science. So welcome, Laura. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'd also like to welcome Chris Flynn, who's the author of three books. The first, A Tiger in Eden, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize. The Glass Kingdom has been described as a breakneck tour of rural Australia's underbelly, while his latest book, Mammoth, has been described as a road trip across time. Thank you. <laughs> Another beautiful cover from UQB. Um, albeit this is a road trip in the company of a wisecracking 13,000-year-old fossil mammoth, which stretches the imagination, but as does most of the book, in actual fact. So, Dan, this has been re recently shortlisted for the Fiction Prize at the 2021 Indie Book Awards. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Danielle. <laughs> Hello. And I'm very privileged to be chairing this session. My name's Danielle Claude. I'm a local Adelaide writer, as you may have gathered. And I think I've been invited here because I have written about women scientists and I've also written about fossils. So I think that's <laughs> the that's the connecting. <laughs> The sense. perfect host. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm actually really hoping that you two might be able to tell us a little bit more about yourselves and introduce yourselves to this audience. Um, and particularly, maybe share with us a little bit about your writing career and what's led you to this point in time and what's shaped you as a writer. So, Laura, could I ask you to kick us off, please? Sure. Um, so, about uh, 10 years ago, I was a high school teacher like a lot of writers it seems, and I taught English and I decided one day, literally one day, that I would like to be a student again. So I went and enrolled in a course at QUT in Brisbane that was a Master of Creative Industries. Loved it so much, never wanted to leave campus, decided to do a PhD in Creative Writing and Literary Studies. And while I was doing that PhD, I started writing a lot of short stories, which is, I mean, I'm writing a novel now, but it's probably my favourite form probably to read and write, actually. So I wrote a lot of short stories for competitions, for journals, um, won a few prizes, and that's how Trick of the Light came about, writing that while I was doing a PhD. And, yeah, so that was about 10 years ago that I left that teaching profession, and um, now I have a different job, and I've written these two short story collections now and working on a novel. Fantastic. Mm. Thank you. Chris? Um... Probably couldn't be more different, really. Um, <laughs> ten years ago. Uh, ten years ago, uh, no, no. Uh, I turn 49 next week. Um, um, thank you. Uh, someone uh, groaned. Someone groaned. Someone audibly groaned. Uh, uh, in envy. I'm not sure if it was an envy. Uh, I couldn't guarantee that. Um, so I'm from Belfast uh, in the north of Ireland. Um, I'm born there in '72, and um, I'm pretty much an uneducated moron uh, who's, who left high school and that was about as far as I got uh, in life and um, always wanted to be a writer and so went down the road of 
doing a thousand different jobs. Uh, so my 20s and 30s were spent um, hanging off the back of a garbage truck um, as a job. I wasn't just doing it for, <laughs> for fun, to scrounge in the, scrounge in the rubbish. Um, although you did find some things occasionally. Um, and uh, I was a, um, believe it or not, I worked in a pillow stuffing factory, um, tontine fibers. Um, for a week, uh, <laughs> I was on artificial fibres. You had to be there 10 years before you got moved up to feathers. Mm. It's true. And you had to wear steel toe cap boots in case a ton of feathers fell on you. <laughs> I shit you not. There was huge, huge bales of feathers that weighed a ton. Although, you know, I suppose it would save your toes. Send those to my mother. But um, what about the rest of you? It's not going to help my precious spine, is it? Um, and I was a referee on a sumo wrestling game on a traveling carnival. It's true, it was un unpleasant, um, breaking up fights mostly. Uh, and worked in a number of offices and worked at the Arts Centre in Melbourne in valet parking. Um, worked um, for the RSPCA for five years, um, uh, taking care of sick and injured animals. And moved to Phillip Island in Victoria um, about two years ago, um, where I now live, and wrote a couple of books along the way. Well, my first book published, I think, just before I turned 40, which was, I think, a week before I turned 40, so I was quite proud about that. Um, first two books, no one really cared about them. They didn't really do very well. Um, and then I wrote this one sort of purely for fun, um, thinking my career was probably over, and I would just do something madcap and that interested me, and I never expected anyone to read it. I didn't think it would ever be published. And lo and behold, um, it was published, and people seem to like it. So it's all a bit of a, a shock for me. I keep waiting for someone to appear and say, no, no, sorry, you, this is all a huge mistake. <laughs> There we go. So there's, there's a classic introduction to the unexpected writer's career. Oh. <laughs> I think it sounds like perfect preparation to me. Um, I'm wondering, these are two very, very different books in, in tone and style. Um, so I wondered if perhaps you'd like to read us a little section of them. Mm. At least Laura does. I'm not sure that Chris does, but we'll, we'll see if Laura Start can... Start with Chris. <laughs> Start with Chris. Really? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Um, I, I've been very reluctant to read passages aloud um, simply because the it's all told in the voice of these fossils um, the night before a natural history auction um, in New York, a real life auction, and the fossils are explaining how and why they wind up there. So the majority of the book is, is true. Um, it's just told through the voice of the creatures, so that's the fictional conceit. But they've all got very distinct voices based upon the era in which they were unearthed. And I thought, well, I'd never be able to read this aloud because it's going to sound ridiculous in my voice. Um, and so the audiobook, we hired an actor who does all the voices, and it's very, it's hilarious. And um, the, after hearing that, I thought, well, there's definitely no way I can read this now. But Daniel has said I have to read it. <laughs> so you'll have to imagine the voice of Orson Welles um, instead of my... Um, Belfast accent. I don't know if there's very many mammoths from Belfast. Um, I'll read a very brief passage from the beginning, so not to bore you too much. <clears throat> the passage of time is difficult for me to parse. 
I know only that day follows night, and then the sun goes down, and the cycle begins again. 13,354 years is too great an amount of time to comprehend, and yet that is what I am led to believe has elapsed since the antediluvian days. The primeval struggle for survival. Man versus beast. Those were heady times. We lost, of course, but we give you a run for your money. The first time I killed a man, that was a good feeling. Clovis, you were back then. You hunted in packs, just like Smilodon, and you were much weaker, but somehow also stronger, more resourceful. Clovis did not roam the grasslands. You stayed in one place. A group might live in a cave or a basic settlement constructed from hewn trees. You worked marvels with your awkward hands, cleaving and building, making things, tools and weapons, representations of beasts you blithely harvested, carved from the severed horn of a Celodonta antiquitatis or from the tusk of my dead sister. Remember the one you speared? I hated you. We all did. Glyptodon, Megalonyx, Arctodus, Camelops, Bison Priscus, Equus, all were hunted without mercy. You ate our flesh and wore our hides. You used our bones to fashion ever more complex butchery devices. You burnt the grasslands and forests. You starved us. You drove us to our deaths over cliffs. You hurled rocks and dug pits. We fought back, but victories were rare. There were too many of you. You were as countless as the stars. There you go. That wasn't so bad. No, that was fine. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Laura, would you like to share a passage from your sure. book? Sure. So there are 20 stories in Ordinary Matter and um, each one is devoted to, up until last year, the 20 times women had won a Nobel Prize in either physics, chemistry or medicine. The first two were Marie Curie. The third one was her daughter, Irene Joliot-Curie. And each of these stories as is the topic of the panel, is um, at a distance, a different sort of distance from each of the women. So sometimes they appear and sometimes I have um, been very creative with the research that they've done or the reach they had. So I'll read a little bit from Irene's story, the third one, which is called Something Close to Gold. And instead of um, Paris in 1935, it's the Sunshine Coast. And it's a husband and wife called Irene and Frederick. Um, and I'll just read a page from something close to gold. I clipped the leash onto the dog's collar and moved the water bowl close to her face with the tip of my running shoe. Frederick waved from the front door as I took off for the beach two streets away, the dunes always bringing to mind a little village buried underneath. At school, I'd played touch football. I was never going to be captain, but I liked to yell at everyone regardless. I was fast and good at geeing up my teammates. I often spoke this way to the dog, telling her she could do it, telling her to hustle. She was a white Maltese terrier whose puzzled face, I thought anyway, suggested she often forgot who I was, had no idea how she'd ended up living in our house. I yelled because I loved her. I didn't have a lot of friends. My workmates tried hard, but they disappointed me. I knew they met up on weekends without me. They insisted it was kiddie park stuff, noisy playgrounds, barely time to chat at all, but I was no one's first thought. Frederick loved me, adored me so much it was embarrassing. He thought I was bright and sharp and hard. 
I thought that my cynicism let his kindness come through more clearly. What could be more cynical than that? Enough, I thought, as we jogged towards the beach. No more. I felt as light as a biscuit. No more. All of it. A blooming belly underneath specially bought dresses. A crib. Feathery muslin wraps. A car seat. A baby's bald head cradled in my palm. I felt it peeling away. Days before, at our fertility clinic appointment, I'd listened to the doctor go on and on. I'd watched his mouth open and close, his hopeful face lean towards us, the frame certificates above his head, while on the other side of his desk, I nodded, saying in my head, OK, all right, it isn't going to happen. It was a release like a knife in me. I'd made up my mind. The universe didn't care if I could have children. It wouldn't care if I decided to stop trying. But maybe it could feel my relief at this. Perhaps the universe lets up when we give up and we slip through a zip in the fabric. The universe accepting us, finally, because we're demanding one less thing from it. The Melaleucas that lined the edge of the footpath were throwing themselves sideways. A searing sandy wind had picked up and the whole place looked like it was swirling. The dog must have felt the wind in her mouth and she barked as if to get it out. The beach was empty. The dog skidded, nose first, down the sand and that's how I found the baby. She was on her back, mewling where the sand met the water. Thanks. So you'll see from these readings that both of these books have very innovative and distinctive and different um, conceits in their structure. So I wondered if we could start with exploring that a little bit more about why you chose that, that particular thematic link. So in your case, uh, Laura, the, 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 the relating the stories to the, the women of science, the, the Nobel Prize winning women, well, what came first in, in that instance? Was it the... Was it the the characters or the or the stories, the concepts? or um, It was sort of a bit of an obsession with um, Marie Curie and the Nobel Prize, which for some reason I um, had a few years ago. I'd written a story in my first book, Trick of the Light, which mentions, again, very laterally Marie Curie. And um, I decided I wasn't quite finished with her and I was Googling a little bit and came across the name of the only Australian woman who's ever won a Nobel Prize in any field, and that's Elizabeth Blackburn from Tasmania, who is still alive and working. And, um, you know, sometimes you're just looking for a project. And after my first book, I thought, that's an interesting project. And one Australian woman, I felt a bit ashamed I hadn't heard of her. And because short stories are my, my thing and I was happy to keep going, I thought, there's 20 stories. You know, the number of men who've won the Nobel Prize in the sciences since 1901 is something like 600, 650. And when I was writing this, three more won last year, good for them, um, but they're not in the book, uh, were 20. And I thought, that's a really doable project. So the characters didn't come first, but I had the shape of the book really early on, that I knew each story would exist in the book in the order in which the woman won the medal. So 1903, then 11, then 35, and so on. Um, but I knew I wanted to come at them from a very different way, not biography necessarily, um, not eureka moments every time. So I sort of allowed myself to do that with that structure. Mm. Yeah. So it gives you a lot more diversity in, mm. the, in the form you're using. 
And what about mammoths? Where did this come from? <laughs> um, a couple of different places. I find with novels, the way my stupid brain works is that um, I'm thinking of a thousand things at once all the time, and uh, I can't really tell which of them I should concentrate on. And so when I'm thinking in a, in a creative sense, I'll have multiple ideas and that seem very disparate, and I'm not, it takes me a while to work out, oh, actually, they might be connected and might be part of the same idea. And that sort of happened with this. Um, I had read that there was a, a new batch of the correspondence that Thomas Jefferson, um, of, his, of his letters, that was released to the public after all these years, um, about 10 or 15 years ago. And I read some of those, and um, just out of my own interest. And um, one of them, he was talking to um, uh, Meriwether Lewis from the Lewis and Clark expedition. And he said to him, um, while you're out there, um, if you wouldn't mind, could you bring me back some mammoth bones? Um, and the letter was written about a week after the presidential election of 1800. And he didn't even know if he'd won yet, because <laughs> um, it took ages to count the votes back then. Um, and um, he wanted Lewis to bring him back either a live mammoth, if he could shoot one for him, please, um, or some bones that he'd heard about. Because um, Jefferson was obsessed with the idea of um, uh, colossi that once roamed the American plains. It's the sort of origin of that um, America as the great you know, project. Um, and he was a Republican. Um, and, uh, and he wanted to prove to the Europeans who, who thought America was this you know, um, awful swamp that, that, not, that nothing ever thrived in. Um, he wanted to show them, no, no, America's great. Um, we've, we used to have huge creatures that roamed the plains here, and we probably still do, because they still, they hadn't, the, the white men hadn't really explored a lot of um, North America yet, so they thought they were still out there. Incidentally, some of the Native American tribes strung them along a little bit with that and said, oh, yeah, 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 we've seen them. They're up in the hills, yeah, yeah, oh, watch out for those. Um, which was amusing. And so I thought, well, that's odd that, 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 and in fact, Jefferson in his first year of office spent an inordinate amount of time reassembling the bones that were recovered um, uh, from different farms. Um, it was his pet project. And in his first year in office, and a lot of people criticized him and said, you should really be concentrating on policy <laughs> instead of, um, instead of um, megafauna bones. <laughs> but I don't know, maybe some politicians should take up hobbies. <laughs> 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 might do them the world of good. Um, but I thought that was curious, just a curious thing, a curious story. And then at the same time, I heard about this natural history auction in New York. They happen every year, these natural history auctions. Um, anyone can go. You can, if you're in New York, you can go along and attend the auction. You can go in the day before and you can touch the exhibits. There seem to be no, um, like they're not under glass or anything. And um, they often sell dinosaur bones, uh, megafauna, fossils. Uh, meteorites, uh, you know, gold nuggets, you know, uh, the severed hand of an Egyptian mummy, um, uh, fossilized penguins. There's, there's lots of different odd things for sale. And usually when the auction takes place, um, universities will bid for them, um, research facilities, museums, increasingly in recent years, um, you know, private parties, billionaires, and um, Nicolas Cage. celebrities like Nicolas Cage, <laughs> the actor, uh, who want to have a Tyrannosaurus skull for their lounge room uh, in order to impress visitors and show how <laughs> macho they are. And so this actual auction took place in 2007, and I thought, how odd that we're, um, we're commodifying these creatures yeah. who are long dead 
and have been excavated at various points in human history and handed from one person to the next. Um, what's the reason for this? I mean, Jefferson was after these two. What, why, 200 years later, are we still doing this? And that's when I realized, oh, maybe there's a story here and I'll follow the thread of each of the fossils mm -hmm. and find out just to research when they were dug up, who dug them up and why, what's been happening to them since. And I couldn't really work out a way of telling the story. It was going to be this, you know, stupidly ambitious nonfiction book. And I'm the last person qualified to do that. Um, <laughs> so I thought I could write it as a novel maybe. And I had an epiphany one day where I realized, oh, maybe the fossils should tell us the story. So the night before the um, auction, the fossils are talking to each other and explaining how they wound up there with the mammoth being the lead narrator. He's a very pompous, uh, pompous old coot who, um, uh, who annoys everyone with his boring story. Um, but it takes us back through a few hundred years of human history and reveals a few truths about us, I hope, in the, in the process. So it was a long bit of convoluted process coming to work out Sorry. how there was a book there. And once I realized there was a book there, I sort of rolled my eyes and thought, well, this is stupid. No one's ever going <laughs> to bother with this. And off I went. But um, yeah, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> So that probably brings us to the issue we're, we're meant to be discussing on this panel, which is can works of fiction inform us more effectively than non-fiction? So, mm. Laura, you've started with a um, biographical starting point and then gone strongly in a fictional direction. To what extent was the non-fictional element informed your stories or how, what role do you think that played other than just the, mm. the, the, the starting point? Yeah, well, at the, at the back of Ordinary Matter, I've written some author notes, which um, I wasn't sure I was going to include them at all, and then my publisher and editor liked the idea of it. So I'd done all this research about these um, 19 women 20 times, and I really enjoyed that part. I really enjoyed doing that biographical research. And I'm not a scientist, but I enjoyed, as best my brain um, can understand, scientific papers and, you know, the work they... Um, did, you know, some of these women worked on um, innovative treatments for malaria and one woman discovered HIV and so they had these far-reaching effects and some of them we might have heard of and some we mightn't. Um, but the biography um, elements inform some of them, like Elizabeth Blackburn, who I mentioned before, there's a beautiful biography by Catherine Brady of her um, and Elizabeth was born in Tasmania in 1948 and I read this biography and there was a little scene in that where um, Elizabeth as a girl, and this was sort of common among these women, had, as you'd expect, they were bright girls, curious. Um, and she observes, she's, there's a scene with her looking into a pond and she's singing to snakes and carrying bugs around and drawing pictures of the body and putting them up on her bedroom. And so it was just a little detail in this whole biography about her. And so I set about creating for Elizabeth's story, Wingspan, like um, a parallel Elizabeth. Not her, but a girl that could have existed like that in the 60s um, with a mother, with a father who's a GP. Both her parents were GPs. But So I sort of changed elements like that. And then you mentioned, Chris, about um, these... You just said the American president. The second Marie Curie story has this... the idea of pillars of history that are real. So in 1921, Marie Curie... A journalist in America found out that she 
um, didn't, hadn't made any money and needed a gram of radium to do some more research, but a gram of radium was $100,000, which she didn't have. So this journalist in America decided to see if she could crowdfund $100,000. In 1921. Um, in 1921. That's a lot of money. So she tried to get 10 American women to give 10000 each, and they didn't. And instead, it was all these small amounts, like we might do nowadays, coaxed Mari out, who was very reluctant, was very ill already, and her two daughters. So they came, met President Harding. He gave her the key to a lockbox that had a gram of radium in it. So I took these pillars that are real. That sort of stuff really fascinates me. And then I decided to populate it with a different character. So we have Mari and her daughters, but the narrator is, is someone who might have been there at the same time because there were a lot of fans, huge crowds came out, and I thought there might be a young man there who needs to sort of carry their bags, keep them away, and maybe he's sort of overwhelmed by this... One of the most f famous women in the world at that time, she was. So I really enjoyed finding these real bits and then populating the stories in a different way. I think it's a nice way to approach um, history and, you know, stories that are based on truth is by, you know, taking an observer's viewpoint and that mm. might not necessarily be someone real. It could yep. be a fictional observer. Who else could have been there? Right, who else mm. could have been there? That's right. And then, you, and then you, you've got that sort of sense of distance between you mm. and the actual story that allows you to, um, to work on it a bit better. Uh, you're probably going to ask me something similar, are you, before mm. I... Because uh, I was going to say that... Uh, Keep going. Uh, a lot of... This is a very unlikely story, um, and most people reading it would probably think I was making it all up. Um, but at the end, I have an afterword in which I explain um, how much of what you just read is real and how much I did make up. Um, and most of it is, is truthful. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what percentage, but um, <laughs> quite a high one. Uh, and um, I go through all of the characters who um, are real and who was fictional. And I love that um, melding of, 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 of fact and fiction. Uh, I've tried to stick to the facts as best I can, and the book was read by a leading paleontologist to make sure I wasn't stuffing it up. Um, and there's two characters in it who are complete inventions. They're an Irish brother and sister um, who end up you know, traipsing after the Lewis and Clark expedition, trying to catch up to him to secure the mammoth bones, um, or to sell him the mammoth bones, in fact. And they were inventions. And I, in the afterword, I claim that, I sort of make it a bit vague that they might be real, but we just don't know much about them. And I should have known better, because um, the one character everyone asks me about is the Irish woman. And someone said to me, that they spent 20 minutes on a, a rabbit hole on Google trying to find out more about her life <laughs> before they had the, you know, the annoying revelation that, oh, he actually made her up. Um, and I also did a bit of a cruel thing in that, um, which I'm going to save you some pain if you're intending on reading the book. Um, the Irish characters, I chose two specifically very difficult to pronounce Irish names <laughs> and gave no explanation as to how to pronounce them. Um, until the very end, but that has actually backfired on me a little bit because um, some people get really annoyed when they find out that they've been pronouncing the names wrong the whole time. <laughs> so I'll, let's do a little test, if you don't mind, if you'll indulge me. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll spell these names out and you can tell me how you think they are pronounced. Here we go. So the, the woman's called C-A-O-I-M-H-E. Kiva. 
Well done. <laughs> Someone got Kiva right. And her brother is called, I'll be impressed if you get this, C-O-N-C-H-O-B-H-A-R. Uh, Who said Connor? That's, that's the, yes, it's, it's Conacher, but that is the original version of Connor, correct. Um, <laughs> very Give good. Hmm? Give him a book, Chris. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is my only copy. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that, that melding of like, using um, invented characters, I find it to yeah. be a really useful tool to observe real events. Mm. It just gives you that remove and allows you to play a little, I think. Yeah. That's an interesting point. It's, it's often... I'm interested in that distancing that you both use in your stories to sort of set yourself a little bit back from the, the factual information. I know when people write about um, scient scientist biographies are notorious for being quite difficult to write. I think pe people often complain mm. that, um, well, that scientists' lives are not really that interesting. It's what's in their head that's interesting, not necessarily what they're doing and, and how they live their life doesn't necessarily relate to what amazing things are happening in their head. So it's unlike other people like artists or something like that where their, their work and their life is more integrated, I suppose. I, so I wondered whether you had that difficulty in approaching... I mean, you, t you talk about quite significant, famous scientific figures in your book um, and, and you obviously are dealing with that. Did, did you find those characters difficult to approach? Is that, is that part of the reason or, or simply that the... the the sort of intellectual nature of their work makes them difficult to convey in fiction. Um, one of my... That's really interesting about putting layers between them. As a short story writer, sometimes it's the voice that I'm looking for rather than what's interesting to me. So um, Dorothy Hodgkin, who is the only British woman in the book, she won in 1964, and... Um, you've got to find your way into a short story, whether it's through the plot or the character or the voice. And I knew that Dorothy Hodgkin is very interesting um, and she, you know, her research, it would, it would have been 35 years, a story where someone waits for 35 years for her, for her to be able to map insulin. That's not a particularly interesting story. But she taught Margaret Thatcher, who was Margaret Roberts at Oxford. And I thought that's very interesting because Margaret Roberts had a Bachelor of Science and not many um, politicians do, Angela Merkel does. So I put another layer in between her and Dorothy Hodgkin by having um, a portrait artist turn up at her house and paint her, which is a real portrait hanging in London nowadays. And so what was going on in Dorothy's mind was very interesting to me, and I, I've researched all of that, but the voice of the narrator of that story came to me before any of before the rest of it and it's the voice of the portrait artist's brother which seems a bit strange but I'd read a line where the portrait artist is Maggie Hamling and her brother her older brother had been waiting for a baby boy to be born and had really wanted a brother and then Maggie Hamling was born and he said no matter I'll teach you how to wring a chicken's neck and as soon as I had that line, I thought, that's my narrator. I will teach you how to wring a chicken's neck. I'll teach you how to do this. And it becomes the story several layers removed, but we still meet Dorothy 
in her in her office in that story. Mm, mm. And that's really interesting, and it brings me to your story, Chris, with the voice. The voice of the characters is really important, and obviously it is in your previous books as well. Mm. Voice comes out as something that you're particularly particularly interested in in channeling, and the voices of your characters are very distinctive and um, an unusual way of coming up with what language they use. Because what language do you use for a for a fossil dinosaur. That's, that's right. That's right. I mean, uh, I, I suspect Laura and I are just um, these obstinate writers who are insist on making life ever more difficult for ourselves uh, by introducing all these different layers that we probably should just tell the bloody story, you know. Um, but uh, it, the, I was a bit concerned, like, how on earth am I going to find... I was like, oh, I'm so clever. I'm, I'm going to write this book from the point of view of the fossils. And then I thought, oh, shit, now I have to write the, point of the book from the point of view of the fossils. How do they speak? Um, so I decided to ascribe their personalities as, um, as being related to the period in which they were dug up. Um, so the mammoth himself was dug up in 1800. So he talks like a, a, a pompous American gentleman from that period. Um, and the penguin spent most of his life, although he's a million years old, he spent most of his life hanging over a bar in Boston, the fossilized penguin. And so he speaks like someone who spent a lot of time in a bar in Boston, with a, complete with a Boston accent. And there's a pterodactyl. Um, these were all you know, on sale at the auction. A, a pterodactyl who was um, dug up in the 30s in Bavaria and was uh, ended up uh, being used by the Nazis as a teaching tool for Hitler Youth um, to show them the, the, the Aryan Eagle, as they called it. Um, so she's a German and um, not that keen on the Nazis. Uh, and the Tyrannosaurus, who's a quite a prominent character, he's not a Tyrannosaurus Rex, he's a Tyrannosaurus Batar, who are from Mongolia. Um, but he was unearthed in 1991. He really was. Um, and exported illegally um, in a shipment of coal to, uh, by a Florida um, uh, dealer, Eric Procopi. There's a documentary you can watch about him. Uh, and he then sold it to um, a bit of shady dealings. He sold it at auction. Um, and so the Tyrannosaurus speaks like a teenager from the 1990s. <laughs> um, so that creates quite a contrast of voices, but that, I, that then proves quite useful to me because you're able to bounce off each other and introduce um, banter, which um, I, I really desperately wanted to get in there because otherwise this could have been a very boring um, tale probably still is, but um, uh, at least they can tell each other a few jokes and, and get in each other's nerves when they're um, all locked together in the auction house. Um, so incidentally, the Tyrannosaurus skull sold for, um, was it $376,000 at the auction? Um, mystery buyers were bidding on it um, over the phone. Um, 276000 sorry. Mystery buyer from Los Angeles bought it. Um, also bought a dire wolf skull for 50 grand. And it later turned out that that buyer was Nicolas Cage, the actor. Um, and he outbid Leonardo DiCaprio, who was also <laughs> trying to buy it. DiCaprio ended up buying the skull of a Mosasaur um, um, and the mummy's hand, which was a genuine dis, you know, um, hand of a, of, a, of a mummy, sold for only four and a half thousand. So any of us could have probably bought that one. Um, <laughs> to a gallery owner in Santa Monica, and it was rumored to be cursed, so hopefully he's okay. Um, but you could buy things like uh, shark's teeth for 250 bucks, um, you know, from the Miocene period. 
make yourself a necklace. Um, the mammoth um, tusk sold for 65 grand, so. And didn't Nicholas Cage give them back? Oh yes, he did. He had to give it back, because um, of course it turned out to be stolen. Um, and so the Department of Homeland Security um, turned up at one of Nicholas Cage's 12, 12 mansions <laughs> and said, we believe you have a Tyrannosaurus skull. And I don't suppose he could hide it. You know, no, no, there's not one here. <laughs> um, and they claimed it and he gave it back. Um, I suppose 276 grand is nothing to, to the cage. Um, so it was, it was repatriated to Mongolia, where it is now today um, in the Museum of Dinosaurs in Ulaanbaatar. And um, I, I slipped in a little um, Easter egg, I believe they call them, into the book, uh, wondering if anyone would pick up on it. Very, only about three people have. Um, at one point, someone asks the dinosaur what his email address is, and he says, you know, tbatarextreme at hotmail.com. <laughs> um, and I actually created that email address <laughs> and have it on my phone. And three and people have sent you email. Only three people have actually <laughs> sent the email. I figured if anyone ever emailed it, I would reply in the voice of the Tyrannosaurus, <laughs> which I have done three times so far. And now you'll get um, uh, So uh, there you go. Um, and it's, it's actually also the only way for people to contact me because uh, <laughs> uh, my email address is not sort of public and on my website it's very hard to get in touch with me. I do that on purpose. Um, so if you want to get in touch with me, you have to email the Tyrannosaurus, who is my agent, if you like. He's my inter he, he takes all my bookings. Um, so if you need me to do a party or something like that, you'll have to ask him. I'm definitely not putting that in one of my books. I get loads from my demographic because I mostly talk to kids about fossils and they would oh. all be emailing me, I'm sure. Right. Speaking of kids, um, I'm going to ask you one of the questions I get asked a lot um, when I'm talking about fossils, which is, which one is your favourite? Because that, I always get asked that question. It drives me mad, so I thought I'd inflict it on you. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> my favourite. Um, yes. And why? Yes. I kind of like the penguin, um, uh, Paleosphiniscus. Um, he's a big penguin. He spent a lot of years trapped in the ice. He's, um, he doesn't really like any of the other fossils. They all get on his nerves. He's a bit annoying himself. Um, um, and he was discovered in the ice by a young Irishman who was um, trapped on a somewhere in the Antarctic and lived there for years and he became his version of Wilson the volleyball from, ca from <laughs> Castaway where he, all he had to speak to was this penguin fossil. Um, so I've got a soft spot for the penguin fossil, mm. I don't know why. Uh, when the audiobook actor performed him, he does it in a perfect Boston accent and he sounds just like um, Matt Damon or um, <laughs> Bill, Bill Burr, the comedian, it is, it is quite amusing. Who's your favourite? Uh, I don't have a favourite fossil. Oh. I was just about to say, I don't have a favourite fossil. Did you have a favourite? think about it. But you, have, you must have a favourite Nobel Prize winner. Uh, let's go with the Australian person, with Elizabeth Blackburn. Yeah, let's go with that one. And she's, not, she's not a fossil. Not a fossil. <laughs> no. She's still alive. No. No, about half are in the 21st century, so more and more women are... Oh. Are winning it, we yes. would assume. Yes, you can definitely see the numbers are increasing yeah. over the decades. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's they've got a bit of catching up to do, though. Mm. I have to say, just a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> so for sure. Yeah. So you, the penguin actually um, reminded me a bit of Norman Lindsay's penguin stuck. Do you remember? Do you, do you remember the character? I can't remember his name on the iceberg stuck on the iceberg when he was shipwrecked. You'll have to read that. Who? Magic pudding. 
The magic in pudding. In the magic pudding, there's a penguin. You need, yeah, definitely. I, I have not read the magic pudding. <laughs> What's the magic pudding? <laughs> oh. Uh-oh, have I just Uh-oh. Lo- I've just lost the crowd now. <laughs> What's the magic pudding? It sounds great. Is it's it- a very classic, classic Australian children's book by Norman Lindsay, the artist, oh. and it's got a penguin in it. Why is it called the magic pudding? I think you just need to read it. Yeah, we're just going to leave that one with you. Yes. Like magic mushroom. The magic mushroom. Not quite like no. a magic mushroom, but right. yes, it's it's a very peculiar book. Mm. You should oh, okay. highly recommend is it. Is there a movie version? I can, I don't, don't watch the movie version. There is a movie version. Don't watch oh, the movie okay. version. I, I yeah. think you need to read the book. Magic pudding, there's, there's tonight's entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> On the airplane? Yeah. All right. Maybe we should return to some a slightly more... I'm just looking at my questions. They're all a little bit grim and serious now for oh. continuing on with that, but... One thing that struck me with both your books, despite the fact that, you know, there's humorous elements and beautiful elements and all those sorts of things, is that the concept of loss um, comes through in both of them. In yours, Chris, there's a concept of the species we have lost and the the concept of loss over time. And in your stories, Laura, there's there's often a... I don't know if... It seemed to me that there was always a a fear of loss or or a sense of impending loss in in some of your stories. I wondered if you could speak to that. Sure. Um, The first story and the last story, I think, in a short story collection, often they deliberately bookend each other or I feel like they um, can speak to each other in a certain way. And the first story, which is called You Run Towards Love, which is devoted to Marie Curie's first medal, and the final story, um, which was at the time of writing the most recent Nobel winner Francis Arnold from America Um, and both of those stories deal with they sort of set up the first story sets up threads for the book which I think is really important and one of the threads uh, for ordinary matter and you do these things not always consciously I think that's fair to say Um, but they do you know plays into what you're thinking about and I was thinking a lot about you know climate catastrophe and environmental concerns and so the first story is set in a 2003 heat wave in Paris, again, which really occurred, and tens of thousands of people died during that. Um, and then the final story reaches a bit into the future. There was um, off the coast of South Australia, where I am, <laughs> off the coast of this state where I am, I'm from Brisbane, um, were these proposals to build, as I'm sure you are aware, oil rigs. And I had been researching this and I found that both devastating and fascinating. And I sort of, in that final story, I reach a bit into the future and wonder what that might be like if that actually plays out for people and for the environment. Um, And at other times in the book, I think I was thinking a lot about um, motherhood. I had my second child while I was writing this book. So those sorts of um, themes about loss of time. A lot of these women as well had children, demanding um, research schedules, demanding field work, kept a home, had children. Um, So those sorts of things play into it as you're writing it. Mm. And the first and last story, loss of habitat, loss of life. Um, What do these things look like in the past and in the future for us? Mm. It's true that these things are not often conscious, Mm. you know. Um, you you kind of got to have a bit of an overall idea that you might want to talk about certain themes, and then just trust your gut that it'll that your brain will somehow work, work it in it there. Out. Yeah. 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 
Uh, with mine, I mean, the mammoth is obviously an extinct creature, um, and he, as well as talking about how he was dug up in 1800 and what's been happening to him since, he also talks about how he died in the first place about 11,000 years prior, and the the final days of his species and how the climate was changing for various reasons, and there are various theories as to you know what happened then. Um, but we we do know that these there used to be tens of millions of mammoth, and they roamed the northern corridor of the earth, um, the tundra that was also joined up at the north of the world, and they would just walk the earth constantly. But they served a role, these mega herds. Um, it was very cold, very dry, um, and they would tamp down the snow with their huge feet and keep the ground cold and hard. But then we turned up and killed them all, all of them. And then it started to get warm. <laughs> so um, it was the, sort of the, the origin of, um, of us in influencing the climate around us. Um, and um, there's a sadness in the book too, although it is, you know, there's a lot of fun going on there. There, there is an ongoing sadness that can take you a little bit um, unawares at times um, about the, the fact that these species are no longer with us. Um, but then, of course, there is a bit of a hopeful note in the book too. I hope I'm not jumping ahead to a later question, um, where um, we are, as unlikely as it sounds, resurrecting them. Um, synthetic biologists in there's labs in Harvard and Shenzhen and in South Korea, and in, in fact, um, the head of the, um, the professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, head of the, Wo the Woolly Mammoth Revival Team, Dr. George Church, he read the book and wrote me a little praise quote for it, which shocked me, and he's one of the people um, who are engaged in a project of bringing the mammoth back to Earth. Yeah. Um, the Permafrost is melting in Siberia, and there's tens of millions of these creatures locked in there, but they're starting to thaw out. And um, they have living, well, not, it's not living flesh, but they still have flesh on their bones. They still have fur. They have blood. You can you look online at videos of them digging them out, and the things start to bleed. And so they've collected the blood, and they've got viable DNA. And because cloning is actually more advanced than they like to tell us, um, yeah, Barbara Streisand is walking around with some dogs, and they are not her original dogs. They are clones of the dogs that she used to have. I don't know if people are aware of that, but Barbara Streisand's little puppies she carries around are clones of her dog that died. Because if you have $100,000 lying around, you can go to South Korea and have your pet cloned today, and they will give you a, a whole selection of puppies or kittens of your dog or cat that are, are they identical? Who knows? Um, so they're pretty close to um, reviving some extinct species, such as the passenger pigeon and um, some prehistoric horses, which are huge, and the mammoth. And Harvard are close to doing it, but they have ethical concerns about um, what's going to happen with this. Um, the South Koreans are quite happy to do it, um, but don't quite have the skill. And the Chinese in Shenzhen, um, there's a great documentary you can watch where you, someone from America visits the synthetic biology facility in Shenzhen and says to um, one of the um, one of the doctors there um, do you think this is the right thing to do what about the ethical concerns and she just goes all quiet and just stares at him and nods and goes clearly mm, mm. <laughs> clearly saying we do not care about your ethical concerns we are doing this um, so we could actually see 
um, mammoth um, baby ones on the news at some time in the next two or three years. And they, their plan is, um, weirdly, to raise the original ones. The original mammoth will be raised by um, African elephants. And then once there's enough of them, and um, then they'll breed naturally. And there are parts of Siberia that, that have been set aside and rewilded. And they're going to be released there um, um, in a huge preserve to do their job and stomp everything down again. And they're not going to reverse climate change, but the idea is to try and recruit these creatures scientifically to um, try and slow it down a bit and buy us some time. And that's an incredible, you know, unlikely story. That, but we could definitely see that happening um, in the next few years. Wow. So that's that's an odd little coda to the book that um, you know you're enjoying this book about the mammoth and his he's gone, but he might be back. <laughs> More than one way to bring an animal to life, isn't there? A fossil animal, yeah. And, of course, we know that, that, that we have debates in Australia as well about the thylacine in particular. Unfortunately, most of our megafauna um, is only found in bones and the DNA is not great from it, but the thylacine, of course, we still have tissue samples from and fetal tissue samples in particular. But yeah, so there's talk about bringing that back, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, but hugely expensive. Um, uh, personally, I think we should concentrate on not losing the animals we still have. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we worry about that. Totally. <laughs> so, um, so that brings me to the concept of time. Time being, a, a, you know, a, a obviously a quite important structural device in your books, as well as a thematic device. Uh, you you shift back and forth in time in your stories. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about that? Mm. And while we do that, perhaps we could see if there are any questions from the audience. So. Um, There's a microphone people, down there the in the middle somewhere. Yeah. somewhere? Yeah, in the middle. Um, anyway, I'll put that thought in your head and we'll listen to... How do you... You must have had to jump around a lot from different time periods. Did, mm. you, did you find yourself discombobulated when you were doing that or did you have a process for keeping yourself straight? I definitely had a process. Um, when I set out to write it, I wondered at the very outset whether um, each story should be set in the year The Woman Won, for example. And I started doing that for a very short amount of time. So a story set in 1903, one set in 1911, 35 and so on. Um, and then I just didn't like doing it. And I, I thought I needed a bit more of a free range for it. And there were two other short story, high concept short story collections that I used as touchstones. One is by Laura Elizabeth Woollett called Love of a Bad Man. And another is Keridwin Dovey's Only the, the Animals, Animals, which are both incredible. And... I looked at how um, creatively those two writers had approached their subject matter. One, which is women who had been or involved with serial killers, that's Woollett's book, and Dovey's is about the souls of animals who have died in human conflict or the hands of humans. They're both incredible. And I, once you sort of read these stories, The Turning by Tim Winton is another of those sort of linked ones, um, I decided I needed to be able to just... The stories would appear in the order that the women won, but why not set Irene Jolio Curie's story when she won in 1935 in the near future Sunshine Coast and, um, and be able to jump around a lot in that sense? Because you need to really enjoy what you're writing right. when you're doing it yep. and you need to keep yourself interested. And I thought, I don't think I would want to... You know, you need to know what I want to read as well. Um, but they each are marked in a certain way. So Marie Curie's first one is set in 2003, exactly 100 years 
after she won because I wondered what Paris was doing to celebrate that a century later, the heat wave, but also some celebrations for her. So it's linked with... Each story is very deliberately linked with time, but moving around is really enjoyable, I think, as a reader, and so I enjoyed doing that as a writer. But mm. how do you make sure you're not doing anything anachronistic, you're not accidentally mixing up your time periods and putting things in there that shouldn't be there? Spreadsheets, a little bit of spreadsheet oh, work. Really? A little bit, yes, yes. And the other good thing about short stories that I love is um, you can juggle. So I juggled a few, several at a, at, a, at a time. I might have had four on the go. And so you keep track of them in that sense. But if you've got an hour to write, you can think, which story can I write for an hour now? And so that's how this book was written, bits and pieces like that, keeping track of them on that spreadsheet. Um, yeah, spreadsheet talk. Uh, right. Um, I, I had a... F I mean, it was fun for me, but probably murder for most writers, but I quite enjoyed um, picking this to pieces with my editor to make sure I wasn't using words and phrases in time, yes. in time periods yep. where, where no one would have been aware of those words and phrases. And I don't know that that always gets done properly with, mm. with books. I've often... Ever since I did it, I'm acutely aware of putting words in people's mouths that shouldn't be there. Mm. And I've read historical fiction since then and mm. immediately picked up on things and thought, no, 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 no. They, they, didn't, they didn't say Details that. Details are really They did not say like that. that. Yeah. Oh, and I, I read a manuscript not long after that editing process where um, there was someone in 1850 in Tasmania using a certain type of rifle and I instantly alarmed off and I thought, I'm pretty sure, not that I know much about rifles, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure they didn't have that. And I looked it up and, of course, it hadn't been invented yet. Mm. Um, but stuff like that is quite important because mm. you, you need to, Definitely. if you're doing historical, if you're basing your, your, your work on historical truths, you have to make sure you're not um, jarring the reader out of it by using a modern phrase that shouldn't be there. Mm. And it, it can really catch you out. Um, my editor and I had a lot of fun doing it, but occasionally we're frustrated because we'd have like a, a lovely phrase and then, and then realised that one of those words wasn't in common parlance in 1800. Mm. And sometimes it's not the things you expect. Um, uh, there was a phrase I used, one of the Irish characters um, uses the phrase, hair of the dog, you know, when the next morning after, you're, after you've been drinking, you know, and you take another drink. Um, but this was in uh, 1803 or something. And we were going through, and I thought, oh, damn it, hair of the dog. I bet you that's modern. There's no way they're going to be... That's got to be modern. And then we looked it up, and it's um, from ancient um, Persia. So you were okay. So it was literally thousands <laughs> of years old. And it came from a time when um, you literally scraped some hairs off the dog <laughs> and mixed it up into a brew if you were hungover, and you drank that. Fantastic. <laughs> I love those little historical details, and, and you only... One of the joys of writing these kind of books is that it's only through exploration mm. of like trying to make sure you're not doing the wrong thing, but sometimes you discover little gems that you wouldn't otherwise know about. Mm. And researching, I said that second story in 1921, I was like, what would people have eaten right. in 1921 at the Carnegie's house in New York? That's fun to, yeah. you know, then you're down a rabbit hole of Googling oh. all these beautiful menus. And, and you're coming up with a thousand other stories. Right. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we do. I'm not yeah. sure everyone does. <laughs> I particularly like the way you had... It almost felt like you were having arguments with yourself through your characters about mm. how could the mammoth have known this much right. about this particular story. I've, I found that quite entertaining. Yeah, yeah that was a, a tricky... Um, again, making life more difficult for ourselves. Um, 
the, the fossils are only aware of what goes on. They're obviously a, um, a stationary object, um, so that instantly gave me a problem because they, they, they can't move around. So how could they be aware of certain things? And even when they've been dug up, they're maybe just sitting on someone's desk. So how did they know certain things? And the mammoth's a bit of a, an unreliable narrator. He's an exaggerator and tends to embellish his tale. And, but the fossils, other fossils pull him up on it. So, that, you know, at one point he's talking about the Irish brother and sister being on horseback, heading out to the follow um, Meriwether Lewis. And one of the other fossils goes, wait a minute, you weren't there. <laughs> you were hanging in on, on, the, on the wall in a brewery at that time. How, how did you know this? You're making this up. But then he gives an explanation for that and says, no, no, she had one of my, one of my molars in the pouch on her side. <laughs> and so I have awareness of every part of my body, no matter where it is. And some of the fossils who've just been completely encased in rock say, no, 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 that can't be true. <laughs> Whereas then the Tyrannosaurus backs them up and says, yeah, yep, yep, I'm missing some teeth. One of them's in Russia. Oh, let me just check in. Yep, it's still in that collection of that billionaire. One of them's lying in a field in Belgium. You know, and so, it, and I love the idea of, that sort of split consciousness according mm. to, and it actually speaks a little bit to, um, to artifacts and um, in, in indigenous artifacts, in mm. fact, in Australia, where, where people feel that, you know, there are certain indigenous artifacts in the British Museum that um, sometimes human remains, that we want them back, and um, understandably so, because there's still a connection there. And I love that idea of like things being dead, but they're still here. They're still present with us. They still have a meaning to us. They still have an importance to us. And in fact, as it you know turns out, ironically, some of these dead creatures might be extremely important to us. Um, they served a very viable purpose, and we um, interrupted that. So now the process is in trying to get it back again. I still think that there may well be some young boys enthusiastic and young girls interested in fossils who are going to have great existential crises now when they read your book about the I idea that the fossils have all got consciousness embedded in them. I didn't, I didn't write it for younger readers. but That's a few, not going to stop them reading it. No, no. That's right. and a few teenagers have read it and a few people have said they've bought it for their teenage um, sons or daughters who are not big readers and then, then they can't get it away from them. And, you know, when it first came out... Um, a popular journalist said to me, his son won't read anything. And he, he gave him this and said, just left it on his desk. And then he read it, and then he saw his son rushing out into the office where he had a keyboard and started playing music. And he said, I'm composing music for a scene in the book. Wow. And I found that very moving. That, so that, that uh, Because I, you don't expect to have that kind of effect on someone. So it sort of catches you a bit, a bit by surprise, you know, that... And, you know, when I was starting out, I always thought, you know, who am I writing books for? Um, it's a question you get asked sometimes, and you don't really know the answer necessarily. And um, I guess I'm writing it for that kid, you know, um, who maybe that inspires him to read a bit more and maybe create his own stories. You know, he's creating a piece of art based on his reaction to this. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's better than winning any stupid literary prize, or um, <laughs> um, that's that's the ultimate. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the ultimate pat in the back for me. My job is done. I can retire. You know, so. And that's wonderful. And on that inspiring note, I think we've run out of time. So I'm going to encourage you all to rush over to the book tent and buy some copies of that's books. And we are at the end of time, aren't we? 
Yes. Oh Good. <laughs> it's gone quickly. Um, Thanks, our Danielle. authors will be over signing books. It's been really lovely speaking to you today. Thank you so much for sharing thank all you. this information you, with us. Thanks. And I'd like you all to put your hands together and thank our lovely guests. <laughs>